Welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today is a special edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series. This is one of our Hot Topics recordings, where we aim to provide timely information to help patients, the general public, and healthcare professionals better understand a current popular topic. Today's episode will focus on palforzia, the first FDA-approved treatment for peanut allergy, which was just approved on January 31, 2020. It's important to note that the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology does not endorse any specific product, but given the interest surrounding this approval and lack of any similar FDA-approved products for the treatment of food allergy, it is important to discuss at this time. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Drew Bird, who is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and Director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Health. Dr. Bird has extensive research experience investigating food allergen immunotherapy and is well qualified to discuss today's topic. Dr. Bird has received compensation from AMUN for research grants as well as for non-promotional educational talks at forums. Dr. Bird, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, what is palforzia and why is this recent FDA approval such a big deal? So palforzia itself is a regulated peanut flour, um, and the important part about it is it's manufactured uh, to U.S. pharmacopoeia specifications, which just basically means it's a regulated manufactured peanut product that has a characterized allergen content, and the peanut flour itself is distributed in a a capsule. I think it's important to note that the capsule uh, will be opened and then the peanut flour will be mixed in with a food vehicle. So you won't be actually swallowing a capsule, but you will open that capsule and then mix it with a food vehicle. As far as why FDA approval is a big deal, number one, I I think it's really important to note that this is the first therapy with FDA approval for food allergy. So certainly we're hopeful that this is the first of many, but it's been years in the process of us working on treatment options for our patients. And so to have something with FDA approval is a really big deal for the food allergy world. And again, hopefully this is the first of many. But if if we think also about why FDA approval itself is a big deal, well, it's really all those things that the FDA uh, assures. So number one, FDA oversight assures there's a regulatory oversight of the product. So that is good for patient safety. It's good for the manufacturer. um, and, And it's assuring that there's a standard label uh, that is provided on the product and that safety information is then available to patients and their families. So no matter who's prescribing the medication or the peanut flour or the peanut OIT, uh, with the palforzia, again, we have assurance that patients have access to knowing um, what we've seen in studies and, and what the safety is of that product. I think that's really important for our patients. There's also assurance that the product has been tested for efficiency and safety and that the way that it's manufactured, um, that there are quality control standards in place, um, dosage levels are established. As I mentioned, this is uh, a characterized allergen content, and so it's important those dosage levels are there. 
And really, as we step back and look at, at what we're doing, now we have more assurance that a phase three trial has been completed, that the scientific method was applied to establish the approach to giving OIT. And so there is, again, this was the largest food allergy trial to date, and that's really important uh, just in knowing that what we're doing for our patients has been thoroughly investigated and that we can be assured that uh, what we're doing um, gives them something that's been, been thoroughly researched and that we can tell our patients, you know, how that affects uh, them and how this product can be used safely. Okay. And, you know, peanut oral immunotherapy has been used by some allergists for, you know, years. And um, so how does this product differ from the peanut oral immunotherapy that's currently being used? So aside from the FDA approval process, um, as I just mentioned, uh, the product, again, is regulated. So that, again, means the amount of protein is consistent lot to lot. The way that that is different is that if you use uh, a commercial product for peanut oral immunotherapy or other forms of oral immunotherapy, there may be differences in the protein content between um, products that are being used. And so, again, just having something with with a guaranteed consistent protein amount uh, assures that you're giving something very intentionally and that our patients know what they're getting and that doctors who are prescribing know what they're giving to their patients. Uh, again, it's also important to note that the method of distribution differs. So this will be obtained from a referral pharmacy. It will be given uh, in a capsule format. Those capsules, again, won't be swallowed, but the capsule will be opened and the, the peanut protein inside will be mixed into another food vehicle. Mm. And do we know if the, you know, this FDA approval status, does that change anything in regards to, you know, the way that it can be prescribed or billing or reimbursement or anything along those lines? So certainly FDA approval process uh, and status is going to change the way it's prescribed. We're actually going to be writing the prescription, whereas without using a regulated product, a prescription isn't used. So certainly within institutions and other places, uh, FDA approval is very important for what we're giving to our patients. Um, that certainly also uh, will favor uh, the physician prescribing uh, the product so that there is uh, a, a prescriber, a pharmacy, more regulation in place that we are able to give the patients what we think we're giving them, that there is a, just another safety check. So that prescription part is an important difference. In terms of billing and reimbursement, the expectation again is that that is going to be established. There, there is a, uh, a standard charge that will be used. Reimbursement will be established through Medicaid, and I'm assuming this is going to improve the ability to get reimbursed through insurance uh, status. But this is not something that I have spoken to anyone about or, or very uh, well informed on what the status is currently. Just the expectation has been that those things would be in place once the product was FDA approved. Mm. And, you know, to put this in context for our listeners, this FDA approval for Palforzia just came through on January 31st, 2020. And we're recording this, um, you know, three days later. So <laughs> there's a lot that needs to be learned. Uh, but along those lines, you know, do we have any sense of cost yet or is it still too early? You know, I'm not familiar with the, the cost of this. I've seen some publications online, but that has not been something that's been confirmed. Um, so I, I'm not the right one to ask about this. I think the expectation certainly has been that we're hopeful uh, there will be insurance approval for our patients. Um, but I, I don't know the, the full cost of the product itself. Yeah, I think that's one thing, you know, an area of, you know, a lot of questions that remain to be answered. And um, so while it's exciting and we want to put this hot topics discussion out there, uh, stay tuned, talk to your, your allergist about, you know, a lot of the important details that will come out down the road. Uh, one thing we do know, though, is what is the age range that Palforia is, Palforzia is approved for use? 
So the product will be approved for use in patients with a diagnosis of peanut allergy, and they'll uh, need to be 4 to 17 years of age for that initial dose escalation. However, once they've gone through updosing and maintenance, they can be continued in patients uh, 4 years of age and older. Okay. Um, and, you know, I know there's a lot of excitement surrounding this. There's a lot of interest in the food allergy community surrounding any type of treatment and, and research that's out there. But let's go back to basics. And, you know, what's the best way to determine if, if somebody actually has a peanut allergy? So number one, making sure that history su supports a peanut allergy. So does the patient have immediate reactivity to peanut? So that's your patient who says, you know, I ingested uh peanut-containing product, and then within two hours of ingestion, typically within minutes, I experience symptoms consistent with allergic reaction. So what do we see? We see things like urticaria develop. We see angioedema develop. We can see coughing or wheezing. Uh, we can see GI symptoms like vomiting immediately after ingestion. And so, again, verifying that that history is really important, and then supporting that with uh, our testing methods, so either skin tests or serum IgE testing that shows the presence of IgE to peanut. And if those things are ambiguous or suggestive that they're not allergic, then we should be willing to do a food challenge before embarking someone on this potentially long-term therapy. Mm, that's a really important point. So somebody out there is listening, and they've been, uh, you know, they reacted to peanut years ago, and they've been successfully avoiding it, but now palforzia comes along. Uh, should that person have, you know, current testing or, or even an oral food challenge before they start? I would advocate that they do have that for sure. I mean, you know, the thing that you're thinking of with oral immunotherapy, again, it's not for, for the majority of individuals, this isn't a cure. So it's not going to make the allergy go completely away. What it's going to do is raise the threshold that would trigger a reaction um, and potentially lessen the severity of a reaction if they were to encounter large amounts of the protein in the future by accident. So to maintain that protection, we really have to counsel families at the present time, it seems that you have to be on this allergen indefinitely until something else comes along or something changes. And there are a minority of individuals that may develop a natural remission from ingestion of the oral product, but really because of that long-term commitment to therapy, it's really important to make sure that they are indeed allergic when you start the, the therapy to, to begin with. Mm. And you mentioned about the, the pre-measured specific doses that palforzia will come in um, in these capsule forms. What does the protocol entail, and um, how often do patients actually need to go to their allergist office? Yeah, so the way that the studies were done and the way this will be implemented in practice, as my understanding, is the same. You'll start with a, a desensitization or escalation day. So the initial day, we start with very small amounts of peanut protein and increase the doses periodically during that day until they get to a certain amount. Come back the following day to give the protein, and then you return uh, recommended or suggested every two weeks uh, for dose escalation with daily dosing occurring at home on the dose that was tolerated in the clinic. And that buildup process takes approximately four to six months, typically, to get to a maintenance dose of allergen. And then they're maintaining that maintenance dose, as I mentioned earlier, indefinitely. Mm. And about how long should will somebody need to be at the allergist office for those updosing visits every two weeks? Um, so after patients come in and get the dose, then we uh, recommend that they are observed at least 60 minutes after the dose is given. Okay. Um, and then what's the final maintenance dose that people would continue to take essentially indefinitely, at least for years, for palforzia? Yeah. So the maintenance dose is 300 milligrams of 
peanut protein. And uh, the question we often get is, you know, what does that mean in terms of a peanut? Well, one peanut is not one peanut is not one peanut. So they, they all don't, they aren't exactly the same amount of protein, but it's approximately the amount of protein in one peanut. One peanut may be somewhere between 180 milligrams up to 300 milligrams or more, depending on the, the variety of peanut that's used. But typically, 240 milligrams is a good estimate. And we say 300 milligrams is about one peanut. So, you know, we're telling patients you're on the equivalent of about one peanut a day once you get to, to the therapeutic dosing level. And do we feel that that is, you know, adequate protection for the vast majority of people with peanut allergy against things such as trace amounts or cross-contamination? Yeah, if you look at some of the interesting work that's uh, been done by Ben Remington that, that kind of suggests what is a protective level, how much benefit can you get from raising the threshold. So if we look at the studies overall, we're looking at patients who tend to react the majority or at least 50% react at less than half of a peanut uh, in terms of exposure, so 100 milligrams or less. So if we can raise your triggering threshold to 300 milligrams or more, we can provide substantial benefit for the majority of peanut allergic patients. That's assuming that you're having exposure through casual cross-contact. So casual cross-contact with peanut allergen is usually very, very small milligram amounts, so 30 milligrams or less in general. So you are obviously providing protection against that if you're able to eat 300 milligrams a day. Now, there are circumstances where individuals may encounter much higher levels. Uh, with some of the oral immunotherapy studies we've done in the past, we've shown that raising that threshold up to 600 milligrams or a gram even for some patients, uh, even if they have a reaction, the severity of the reaction tends to be less. Mm. And what have we found in regards to quality of life for, for patients who have reached that maintenance dose in the oral immunotherapy trials? You know, it varies. Uh, surprisingly, I think early on, a lot of our trials showed an improvement in quality of life. But if you look especially at, at the PACE paper that came out from Bob Wood um, recently, it, it suggests that the quality of life may not improve for all patients as much. What we find, uh, some interesting work from Corinne Keat showed that the patients who tend to improve the most in terms of quality of life are really those who have experienced or expressed the most restrictions from the peanut allergy. So these may be your patients who, for instance, the parents are afraid to send the kid to a relative's house overnight, or they're afraid to send the kid to school and so they've homeschooled, or, you know, really the, the anxiety created by the peanut allergy has just really inhibited their life. And so by being able to proactively do something, by raising that threshold, they feel a, a bit of relief and a little more confidence and allowing their kids to, to live a more normal life. If on the other hand, it's a family who has one kid that's allergic and three kids that aren't and they're really busy and they've got soccer practice and band and theater and activities going on all the time, they may find it really, really hard to come into clinic every two weeks for updosing and to make sure the kids are in the dose every day and, and you know, to limit their activity after ingestion. And so these are families that may say, you know, this isn't the right thing for me. And I think the important thing as we go into this world is really to have that, you know, you've discussed it before. I, I think it's really important, the shared decision-making concept and really boiling that down just to saying, be really honest with the families. It's not a have to, you know, I think just because there's a treatment on the market doesn't mean every peanut allergic patient has to be on treatment. Avoidance is still a really great option for a lot of patients. This is just another option that for some families is great and it's going to offer a lot of benefit, but it's not a have to for every patient for sure. Yeah, I think that's an important concept to, to discuss with everybody. Now, you, you touched upon this, and just to kind of summarize, um, in order to 
even reach the maintenance dose. It takes about four to six months, and you have to go to the allergist's office where you're given your updose, and you have to be monitored for about 60 minutes afterwards. But just to clarify, um, the, the child's actually eating this every day at home. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And are they able to eat as much peanut as they want, or do they have to restrict it to just the specific amount involved? Yeah, no, that's a great point to make. They're not. So they're still just giving the regulated amount of peanut that's in the Palforcia product. So whatever dose they're on, that's all they're taking. This is not, the goal of this product is not to liberalize peanut consumption in the diet. And if you talk to a lot of these families, you know, and ask them, what is your end goal? The majority of my experience with patients has been not that they want their kids to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They really just want their kid to go to camp and not worry about accidental ingestion of a peanut cookie and have a bad reaction or, or go to a friend's house and have accidental contamination. So this is, again, meant to raise that threshold, provide some broad protection, um, but it's not intended to allow liberalization of the food into the diet ad lib. Mm. And on a daily basis, so you're at home, you know, weeks to months to years, and you're taking your, your single dose every day. Are there any um, recommendations or certain restrictions that people have to follow in regards to the time of day that they take it or any activity surrounding it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's important, number one, that the dose is given under observation so that we aren't giving these kids the doses at home and no one else is around. Um, they must be taking the dose with, we recommend having a snack or a meal before, so we don't want them having it on a full, on an empty stomach. Uh, we don't want the kid to be sick at the time that they're taking the dose, so if they're sick, they need to abstain or to modify the dose. Um, we want them to refrain from heavy physical activity for about two hours after ingestion of the dose. Um, and, and we don't, I, we recommend you don't send the kid to school right after you give the dose. So all these things do play into a very particular time for most family schedules. It tends to be after school in the evening, but we don't want to send them to bed either. So they need to, to not be given the dose and go straight to bed. So there are some challenges to really making sure, especially for some families, it, it works perfectly, but there are others who uh, have a difficult time finding that time in the day when it's convenient for them to give this. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, definitely something that needs to be discussed and thought through prior to starting rather than kind of figuring out uh, a few months down the road that it's just not going to work due to somebody's schedule or things like that. Right. Uh, now, are there any contraindications to somebody using Palforzia? The main contraindications are if they have uncontrolled asthma or if they have a history of eosinophilic esophagitis or other eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease. If that's the case, then it's not recommended as the... the uh, Exposure to the allergen if you're asthmatic can exacerbate an asthma exacerbation, but if you have an eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease, um, we have seen that it can really create intolerable abdominal pain or make a flare of the, the uh, gastrointestinal disease. Mm. And, and, you know, you were uh, an investigator and, and served as a site for some of the clinical trials surrounding this product. Uh, and from all the published data that was pulled from all of the participants in these trials over the years, what have we learned in regards to side effects? Yeah, so the most common side effects that we tend to see uh, with in our oral immunotherapy patients, we tend to see uh, abdominal pain, we see vomiting, we see nausea, we can see oral itching or um, oral paresthesias, we can see throat irritation, um, patients can experience coughing or runny nose or sneezing, all these things that are signs of allergic reaction. Um, 
we can see wheezing or, or itching or urticaria. And really important, we can still see anaphylaxis. And this is what Bob Wood's data has shown uh, looking at most of the OIT trials is that the incidence of anaphylaxis actually seems to increase on OIT compared to strict avoidance. Um, so again, these are in, in closely monitored settings. I think it'll be interesting to see as this drug comes to market and we see it implemented more broadly, is, does that uh, continue to be the case or, or is it modified? Mm, no, that's interesting. And, you know, so some somebody's taking palforzia or peanut or aluminotherapy uh, of any kind, and, and they're on their maintenance dose, uh, does that mean they get to leave their epinephrine auto-injector at home when they go out and or no longer refill it, or do they still need to have their epinephrine available? Yeah, a really important point. So they absolutely need to keep the epinephrine auto-injector. Um, as I mentioned, the risk of anaphylaxis may actually increase, so it becomes even more important to have it available, to have it current and to know how to use it. So if you have a patient that either is um, hesitant to use their auto-injector or afraid to use it, you really need to reconsider whether or not you feel comfortable prescribing this and allowing them to give themselves a dose at home if they aren't going to uh, willingly use their auto-injector. Mm, okay. And, you know, what are some of the common reasons why people decide to stop oral aminotherapy, um, you know, that we've learned from research studies or, or uh, other publications? Yeah, so, you know, number one, side effects can be intolerable for some patients. The most common reason to drop out of the study for some of our patients was uh, abdominal pain. So the abdominal pain was just intolerable and they couldn't do it. Uh, treatment fatigue is another thing to be concerned about. So just doing something every day for a long period of time um, doesn't seem to be uh, in the best interest of all families or all, all kids, especially as they get older and become more willing participants in the conversation about their therapies. Um, and those tend to be the most common reasons we see patients discontinue. They just, uh, for, for whatever reason, if it's not the side effect or just the, the treatment burden, um, they just don't feel that it's important to continue and, and uh, they, they stop. Once they stop, then you have to consider them still allergic and, again, to continue practicing strict avoidance. Gotcha. And, you know, just to for the you know, everybody listening to summarize it, you know, it sounds like palforzia and oral immunotherapy in general, uh, for some families and patients, it's the best thing that they've experienced because it improves their quality of life and it loosens restrictions and it makes a significant impact. Whereas for other families, um, it's it's a burden or it causes side effects and they have to discontinue. Uh, so I, I think the take-home message really is that it's, a, it's an individual decision. Um, and it's not one size fits all that everybody who has peanut allergy absolutely needs to pursue this, but it's certainly something that they should be discussing. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things we haven't mentioned also is that many of these patients are multi-allergic. So mm. if you're treating the peanut allergy, it doesn't do a thing for your milk allergy, your egg allergy, your tree nut allergy. So again, patients have to continue being very careful um, with what they're eating while they're on therapy. Yeah, okay, great. And, you know, what about for allergists? Is this something that every allergist is going to be able to offer? Or are there some, you know, practical limitations and challenges that they have to think about uh, of, you know, how are they going to do this in the in the middle of a busy clinic setting? I think that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm hopeful that most allergists will be able to implement this. And I, the feedback I get from a lot of allergists um, after I've given talks or, or uh, when I've gone to meetings is that they're hopeful to be able to implement it. But certainly there are some who, who feel like it might be a challenge to put into their practice. I think if you're doing allergy shots, then you should be able to have a set-aside space where you can bring patients in for updosing and for observation. Um, 
but certainly if that is not possible or if, if there are different factors, then there may be space occupied by these patients being there for a little bit longer than anticipated that, that could challenge your clinic flow. Um, but those are things, yeah, that will have to be addressed and we'll see as as early immunotherapy rolls out. But I think in general, the, the feedback I've gotten from the allergy community is pretty enthusiastic and, and is an accepting of being able to work this into their practice. You know, from all the research studies that have been published surrounding oral immunotherapy, do we have a sense of uh, who the optimal candidate is for, for oral immunotherapy, or even more importantly, who's at highest risk to have these severe side effects? You know, unfortunately, there aren't great predictors of um, before you go into the treatment period of who's going to have the most side effects. Um, there have been some studies for different foods that suggest the higher IgE levels, the lower triggering uh, amounts during food challenges, um, that those patients tend to have more side effects. But I, I believe that as we looked at the phase three uh, immune trial, that did not, that wasn't as consistent. Now, this is only a year in therapy, but there weren't good markers of who would or would not tolerate the therapy as well. So I, I think, again, the optimal candidates in my mind are those who, number one, are willing to be compliant and consistent with recommendations. So they'll give the therapy every day. They'll call your office if there's problems. They'll carry their auto-injectors. Um, that's really important. Their other allergic diseases are well-controlled, so asthma is well-controlled. Atopic dermatitis is well-controlled. That's really important. And then, optimally, the patient who's monoallergic, so meaning that I'm allergic to peanut but nothing else, well, this might be a great product for them. If you're allergic to peanut plus five other foods, then just you need to consider whether or not doing oral immunotherapy for this food or for all of them is, is worth your while because of the burden of, of treatment itself can be very, uh, very difficult for families to comply with. And, and as we wrap up today's conversation, uh, and of course more to come since this is really just, you know, brand new information for all of us, um, for the allergists who are listening and, and parents and family members, uh, do you have any talking points surrounding this concept of shared decision making that can help guide the conversation about whether palforzia may be a good treatment option? You know, my main thing is to be open and honest and to not try to to unfairly influence the family. I, I try to steer clear of ever saying, if it was my kid, I would, or if it was my kid, I wouldn't. I think none of us know the family's situation perfectly, and um, we certainly can't, uh, our comfort with treating anaphylaxis or that sort of thing is different from our patient's experience. And so I really try to steer clear of, of making some suggestion based on what I, I think I would or think I wouldn't do. I think the most important thing is to just really be open and honest about why patients um, want to do it, uh, the patients who have been successful, what is it that about those patients that tends to be most worthwhile for being on oral immunotherapy, and then what to expect. So be willing to discuss with them the expectation that they may have allergic reactions, that they may have um, they have the reactions may be very minor, and they may be able to work through it, but just to expect that as they go through. There was an interesting study coming from Stanford that looked at the approach to patients going on OIT protocols, and they differentiated two groups. They had one group where they told experiencing these symptoms like abdominal pain or mouth itching were signs that the OIT was working, and they had a group that they told the same symptoms were suggestive of an allergic reaction. Those who were told of suggestive allergic reaction tended to call more often to be more worried about their therapy and to uh, not complete the protocol as successfully as the others. So there is something, again, about how we reinforce our patients and educate to our patients. You know, what what you're experiencing might be a sign that this is, is working well. But 
really I want to reinforce it's important to let the families know that they can call your clinic and that they should be comfortable discussing any problems they're having uh, on therapy. We don't want these patients to be out there having reactions and afraid to call or, or not knowing what to do. We want the clinics to be readily available to help walk the families through this, uh, this treatment. Yeah, well said. Hey, Dr. Bird, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us uh, on short notice and to discuss this hot topic of palforzy and, and peanut immunotherapy that was just FDA approved. Uh, this is very helpful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? That's it. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast or iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.